L Fanboy, episode 61. everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 61st edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I got a very stacked show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about some reports I've put up this week. I have some follow-ups for you. I'm going to talk a little Star Wars, since there's been some great news on that front. I'm going to talk a little Batman here. So uh, let's go ahead and dive right on in, shall we? Because I got a very busy day, and uh, I, don't, I can't afford to dilly-dally. So let's get right on into it. So earlier this week, I published a pair of reports. One was about the balance of power at DC Entertainment, as it was explained to me, and a follow-up about just something I noticed while researching for that piece which was basically, and just to recap, in terms of the balance of power, it looks like they're finally moving to a we-have-one-captain sort of model. You know, whereas in the past, DC Entertainment had kind of had like a conglomerate, a group of people that was led by Zack Snyder early on. And then they sort of switched to like now it's John Berg and Jeff Johns and now it's a two-headed monster. Now they're finally sort of wising up and they're trying something new. And they've basically made it so that DC Entertainment is Walter Hamada's ship. And Jeff Johns is there mainly to consult to advise if he, you know, if Walter has any questions, if, if any of the directors and writers working on these films have any questions, he's like the DC Comics guru who's there on call to help you out with any questions about the mythology or the tone or how to present these characters. But this is Walter Hamada's show, right? Then in the follow-up, I pointed out that there have actually been a number of huge promotions and hires that, that, that demonstrate that Warner Brothers has looked at what worked for New Line Cinemas, which is a subdivision of theirs, and decided, hey, we want to, we want to have some of that same success. Because, you know, New Line Cinemas, their whole thing is they were always more of like the smaller sort of boutique sub-studio of Warner Brothers. Whereas Warner Brothers proper is the one that would do the big budget, crazy, like tentpole type movies. New Line Cinema is where they tend to put projects that are a little more niche, that are a little more like, you know, the horror movies, the comedy movies all come out under the New Line Cinema banner. And it's all part of this general philosophy of a low budget, high concept movie. A movie where you don't necessarily, you know, you're not gonna have all this spectacle, all of this sort of blockbuster, you know, bluster, but you're going to have a, a story or a concept that is easy to sell, that you could turn a profit on it super simply, but it's, you know, you're not going to break the bank and it's more like, you know, low risk, high reward. And even if it does tank, at least you didn't spend that much money on it. So you can just sort of handle that, that quote unquote failure, right? Now, you know, in that report, I pointed out that aside from Hamada, there's the fact that Toby Emmerich came from New Line Cinemas and now he's like the head of uh, Warner Brothers proper. Then you've also got James Wan, who's already been there for a couple of years since Aquaman, so you can't really factor that in as part of the this new wave of New Line hires. But if you keep looking, there actually is a trend here. Because David F. Sandberg, 
who's who just you know rapped on Shazam, he made Annabelle Creation for New Line Cinema. John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, they just had success with Game Night, and now they're going to make the Flash movie. If you just kind of look across the board, Warner Brothers is heavily looking at their New Line Cinema people and going, this is going to be our direction moving forward. Even Walter Hamada, his main claim to fame is his work on The Conjuring movies and Stephen King's It and these movies that cost, you know, I, I keep going back to this figure, but it's unbelievable that the four Conjuring World movies, which are, you know, Conjuring 1 and 2, Annabelle and Annabelle Creation, so far those movies have cost a combined, like, $82 million. They made four movies for $82 million all together, and those films have made $1.2 billion. So Walter Hamada comes from that sort of mindset of how do we make a lot out of a little? How do we get the most out of every little dollar that we have rather than, you know, having we have an infinite sort of carte blanche blank check to make movies as big and as grandiose as we want. And that sensibility, I think, can lead to some great things. But, you know, some, some people read about the low budgets and they started to worry. They started to worry, oh, does this mean that the DC movies are going to start looking cheap? Is this gonna is this gonna make it now? Like Warner Brothers is really just, you know, um, how should I put it? Warner Brothers is reluctant to invest in DC anymore after it's had a couple of high profile underperformers. You know, people started looking at it negatively, but I'm here to let you know that those fears are unwarranted as of now. So let's first sort of talk about this concept of the low budget, high concept film. We've got some great recent examples of movies that, that prove that you don't need to spend a ton to make a movie that looks really good, that sells really well, and that connects with audiences. I mean, look no further than a few months ago with the unbelievable run that Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle did with Dwayne Johnson, Kevin Hart, Jack Black, and Karen Gillan. That movie, which was a Sony production, mind you, wasn't New Line, wasn't anything else, but it's very much the type of movie that New Line would make. That film only cost like $90 million to make, and it went on to break all kinds of records for Sony Pictures. It actually outgrossed all of their Spider-Man movies. Think about that. A $90 million movie that arguably nobody asked for, because really... Who was clamoring for a pseudo-sequel, pseudo-reboot of Jumanji, the, you know, the, the 90s Robin Williams movie? No one, you know, no one was looking for that. And yet, what happened? It made almost a billion dollars. It's ludicrous. But it's because they found the perfect way to sort of crack this story and sell it in a way that anyone could sink their teeth into it. The trailers all demonstrated this whole thing, this idea of four characters getting sucked into a video game world and trapped inside avatars that couldn't be more different from who they are in real life. It's a great and simple premise, and when you have a game cast like Johnson, Black, Gillen, and Hart, it just sells itself. And people kept, you know, the people saw it several times. People told their friends, oh, this was a great time. And here you go, all of a sudden, this movie proving that you don't have to have this huge budget. You don't have to have all tons of spectacle and giant monsters and explosions. You don't need to make a $250 million movie to turn a great profit, have fans excited, have critics give you a thumbs up, and to laugh all the way to the bank. 
Heck, right now we've got Deadpool 2 in theaters, right? And I've often pointed to the fact that if you look at the original Deadpool, what they managed to pull off there is unbelievable because if you distill Deadpool down to its core plot, to its core premise, there's not much movie there. The plot is very straightforward. There's very little there that we haven't already seen in the superhero genre, in the action hero revenge genre. There's really, you know, it, there's nothing there. But what happened? You had a core nucleus of, of a creative team there that absolutely loved this character. You had Ryan Reynolds, you had Reese and Wernick, and you had director Tim Miller, these people who were fully invested in the character, who knew the books, and who knew how to shine a spotlight on what makes this character special. And they littered it, you know, the whole movie is filled with this fresh, vibrant sort of, you know, anarchic energy to it. And people took to it because the characters were front and center and you were so invested in Ryan Reynolds and the sort of uniqueness of the way this story unfolded that people, it, it, it made all, you know, an insane amount of money and the critics liked it. And it sort of, you know, launched this whole, you know, now we have Deadpool 2 and we're looking at X-Force and it all came from a movie that Fox didn't even want to make. Fox gave them a $69 million budget. You know, like they made this movie for peanuts. They almost didn't make the movie at all because Fox was hesitant to do it. They were reluctant to touch Deadpool after what happened with uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Much less with Ryan Reynolds, who already played him in that failed movie. So Fox had basically turned their backs. They said, well, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to invest in this. We're just not going there. And then what happened? You know, the Tim Miller... Test footage hit the web, and suddenly they saw there was some interest in it, so they gave them a modest budget and sent them off to the races. And the team, instead of looking at the modest budget as like a hurdle and as some sort of middle finger, they were like, okay, challenge accepted. And they made the most out of that budget. And they made a movie that really popped, that really had a lot of personality, that had a simple but understandable story. It had a lead you can relate to. It had a style that was very uniquely its own, and it reaped all the rewards. Because, like, a funny thing happens when you have infinite resources. You know, I've seen more movies with bloated, giant budgets underperform than films like Deadpool underperform, or, or, or at least become some sort of big sort of stain on a franchise or some sort of big negative story. I mean, a couple examples that come to mind, even like my own sort of that, I'll, you know, the, my, my movie that I will always defend to the 10th degree, even though it definitely doesn't deserve it, is Superman Returns. Back in 2006, Warner Brothers made Superman Returns, and Warner Brothers had this philosophy that has gone straight up until recently, which is what Walter Hamada will change, but they had this philosophy of just, let's just throw as much money and as many resources as we can at this, and you know it'll just somehow magically be a good movie. And Brian Singer, listen, for all of his noble intentions, you know, I, I've said before on this show that I totally get what he was going for and I can relate to a lot of what his take on Superman was. And for me, there was a surprising amount of meat on that bone and heft and weight to that movie. And that's why I'll always have a special place in my heart for it. But he also got crazy carried away because with, with that unlimited budget, he kind of like just started going nuts with things. 
You know, he, he, he decided regular cameras wouldn't do. He had to pioneer a whole new camera style, a whole new wave of cameras for these movies. Oh, the, the costumes have to have these S's that are made of, embossed of all these tiny little gems. And, it, you know, it, and we have to ha like manufacture like a hundred of them. And each one of them costs a ton of money. Like, in general... He, he, it seems like he got lost in all of the budgetary stuff. It looks like he was given so many, like Warner Brothers just opened up the vault and said, do whatever you want. And they ended up sort of losing sight of a compelling story and they lost their finger on the pulse of what it was that audiences wanted to see because they just focused more on just going bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's just, you know oh, we're going to grow an entire cornfield and an entire, like, functioning farm for, like, the one Smallville sequence in the movie instead of just focusing on creating a nice, tight, interesting story. And, oh, you know, Warner Brothers has given us access to this entire soundstage in Australia that is specifically there for practical uh, flying effects. It's all wire rigs. It's all this incredible stuff there so that you can actually film Brandon Routh so that he looks like it's actually him flying. But, you know, why use that when we have this cutting, you know, state-of-the-art technology where we've digitally scanned Brandon Routh and for the first time ever, it's like we have an actor living inside of the computer and it'll be so super photorealistic and we'll do this and people will be blown away. They won't be able to tell the difference between the fake and the real one. So let's do that instead of using the cheaper and probably far more convincing practical effects that were there. And that's why it astounds me, too. If you go back and see that movie, you know, he looks fake and made of rubber in so many of the flying scenes. Meanwhile, if you go back and look at some of the the the, the making of videos and the, uh, the the Brian's blogs that he used to put on the on the Internet every few weeks while he was working on the movie, you'd see that they literally, literally built an entire warehouse for practical flying effects. And they seemingly used it for maybe two scenes. Like, this is what happens when you're given carte blanche. It's this sort of like, I can do everything and anything, and that makes it so much easier to go off into the weeds. Whereas if you're a filmmaker and the studio tells you, okay, this is your budget, you have to achieve everything that we've agreed upon within this budget, and I need you to film between this month and this month, and it has to get knocked out by this point, because this is my release date, and go, it forces you as a creative team, it forces you as a director, as a writer, to really hone in on what makes this story special. What is it that we can do to make this really connect with audiences? Because we don't have the option of bloating things with bells and whistles. We can't just throw, you know, an eye candy, you know, action sequence into the middle of this that's going to eat up some running time and give people some manufactured thrills. We have to make people actually invest in these characters. Otherwise, the entire thing doesn't work at all. And this thing is going to be a disaster. So... It's kind of amazing what happens when you're given limitations instead of carte blanche. So that's why I'm thinking the only way that this mantra, this new sort of more fiscally responsible mantra at DC Entertainment is going to falter, the only way it could fail is if you hired the wrong people. 
if you hire people to make these films for the wrong reasons, <clears throat> in other words, if you hire some director who doesn't give a damn about a particular character, but, you know, he's, he's had some success directing, you know, music videos or commercials, and now he wants to just take this job as a paycheck and as a way to expand his, his brand so that he can now make some other movies he's really interested in, then yes, going cheap is going to suck because the movie's going to look bad and it's going to be uninspired and now you're going to taint a character and you're going to further taint a franchise that right now needs nothing but inspiration and positivity and energy and goodwill. But... On the other hand, if you hire directors who are really creatively locked into these characters, who have bought in, who are invested, who love these things, then just like what happened with Reynolds and Reese and Wernick and Tim Miller, magic happens. Because they will not look at these limitations or these low budget figures as a as some sort of obstacle they're going to look at it as a challenge they're going to look at it as okay how do we make the most of this how do we make the absolute best green lantern movie we can make or the absolute best you know hawkman movie which by the way i can't i don't know where all those rumors are coming from about hawkman i mean i haven't personally heard anything but to me it sounds so random for anyone at dc to be even thinking about stuff like that when we still have to get superman and batman and all this stuff going you know like hawkman and and blue beetle and all these other weird little teases that have been popping around i'm like all right <clears throat> Let's please settle down. I don't know where these are coming from. I don't know who's leaking these things to these other reporters. But let's take a deep breath and just chill for a little bit. Because we have to focus on the core characters. But again, I digress. As long as they're hiring directors who are really locked into these characters, I don't think we have anything to worry about when it comes to, oh, they're going to try to keep the budgets under control. Like, okay. Let's kind of go back to 2006 and 2005 again, shall we? Because you need not look further than the fact that Superman Returns costs like, you know, depending on who you ask, like $250 million, maybe even more. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, it didn't flop like some would have you think, but it greatly underperformed compared to what, you know, the expectations were. And then you have Batman Begins which had come out the year prior and only cost $150 million to make. And you have arguably one of the best Batman movies ever. You know, because what, what happened there? Nolan and Goyer, they, you know, they, they mined the Batman mythology. They came up with a focused and exciting narrative. And they created a film that cre it was a whole launch pad for every other place that they wanted to go. And they did it for like $100 million fewer dollars. Go figure. You know, if you look at the current DCU, the film that has turned the most profit, the film that did the most domestically, which is really where it counts, because remember, Warner Brothers, studios in general, make their biggest cut of the money from the domestic numbers. International numbers get divvied up a lot more. They get a much smaller percentage of the box office figures from overseas than they do. So as much as people like to, you know, sort of tout the worldwide figures on these movies, you really got to pay attention to the, to the domestic numbers more than anything, because that's what the studio really, really cares about. And their biggest success in the current DCU was Warner Brothers, uh, was Warner Brothers, was Wonder Woman, and Wonder Woman costs under 150 million bucks to make, whereas the ones that they've gone, you know, over 200 million on have sort of, you know, they, they haven't done what they wanted. 
So right now, you know, the good people at Warner Brothers and the you know the the people that they've hired to be in charge of everything now, surely they're going to look at like Wonder Woman as an example of we don't need to spend an insane amount of money. Just give people a lead and a premise they could sink their teeth into. And, you know, the rest will just sort of work itself out. That's honestly why I'm so excited about Shazam. I feel like this is like a perfect merger. I'm getting this sense that for this version of Shazam, Zachary Levi, Levy, Levy, I have no idea how to say his name. I have a feeling that this could be one of those things where, like, he was born to play this version of Shazam. Just like Ryan Reynolds was born to play Deadpool. Just like I think Jason Momoa is brilliantly cast as this version of Arthur Curry that we're getting in the current movies. I feel like Zachary Levy, Levi, Levy is perfect for this Captain Marvel, this Shazam movie. And it's one of those things where, like, again, the stars are aligning. You have a you have a winning character, a charming lead actor, a premise that sells itself big meets Superman, and boom, you don't have to break the bank to make this movie. People will show up because it's such a novel concept. And at the end of the day, that's what really resonates with audiences. Novel concepts. They look what happened with like a quiet place. Uh, just like what, two months ago. Quiet Place was made for like 75 cents. And it has gone on to make a ridiculous amount of money because of the central thing. A, a movie where you can't make noise. And if you do, you're instantly dead. And you have two, you know, charismatic leads in uh, Jim Halpert. No, in John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. And people bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Because at the end of the day, a nice, simple concept beats a bloated blockbuster extravaganza with exploding cars and collapsing buildings any day of the week. People at the end of the day, they, they get tired of that. That's why Transformers has sputtered out. That's why you notice like, General, like more effort seems to be going into these movies now to make them interesting, make them fresh, and make them exciting because audiences are finally starting to reject the big bloated action summer blockbuster bonanza. Especially when you're introducing a new character or trying to re reboot or relaunch an old character. Because right now, you know, it, those first few movies is more about that feeling out stage. It's about getting the audience to buy into your you know, into your premise, into your movie, into your characters first. And then you get to go bigger later on. I mean, just look at what happened with like Marvel's Phase 1. With all four of the original Marvel Phase 1 movies, the, the, the first four, with Iron Man, First Avenger, uh, Incredible Hulk, Thor, all of those movies cost under $150 million. They were actually made sort of quote-unquote on the cheap. And then what happened? Once audiences had shown that they had bought in and it was time to make the proper Avengers movie, then you had a movie that went north of $200 million. They made it for $220 you know, because right now in the early going, the focus has to be on allowing audiences to fall in love with these characters. And as long as that's the priority over at DC Entertainment now with Walter Hamada calling the shots, then I don't think there's any cause for concern. There's nothing to worry about. In fact, I think this could lead to, to a whole new, you know, reinvigoration of the DC brand as the as the, the creative teams involved now are going to be forced to be as creative and imaginative as humanly possible. And you know who's got an amazing ability 
to get a lot out of a little. That would be Matt Reeves, the man currently tasked with bringing the Batman to the big screen. Because if you think about War for the Planet of the Apes, this is a film that had so much mocap work, so much technology, so much ingenuity went into this thing. It was this big, you know, it, it had action, it had some notable stars in it, it you know, it, it had all the trappings of a big blockbuster film, and Reeves managed to make that gorgeous-looking movie with really photorealistic effects and a compelling story and interesting, you know, everything for $150 million. So, you know, that, that, that right there is proof of concept. Now, so if we're talking Batman, if we're talking Matt Reeves, if we're talking all this, you know, there's, uh, th there are these new rumors making the rounds that Affleck is going to stick around. You've got people saying that, you know, he had a foot out the door. It looked like it was over, but then something happened and now he's signed a two-picture deal with an option for a third. And you know what? It's one of these weird situations where I have heard the opposite. As I've mentioned, you know, I gave you some bochincha a couple weeks ago that I heard that he is definitively gone and that they're officially internally preparing to move forward and, you know, in a new direction with a new actor and the whole thing. Uh, so, and I, I have yet to hear anything that contradicts that. And yet I read these rumors and I, and I think about it and I can't help but allow the fanboy in me to get excited again. Because listen, I've said it time and time again, but a motivated Affleck is an incredible Affleck. If we, if we can get more of the Batman that we saw in BVS, then sign me up 10 times over. I will be, give me one, a movie about that Batman once a year, every year, and I will be there. You can reserve my seat right now. And, you know, if I want to try to put some stock into these rumors, despite the fact that I've heard the opposite, um, you know, my imagination takes me to places where I wonder, okay, well, what would have changed his mind? You know, it's not a money thing. He's an A-list star. He can always get a paycheck. And, you know, he's been in the business long enough that he's doing just fine. So it's not a money thing. It has to be a creative thing. It has to be a conversation with Matt Reeves and the DC Brass that got him so excited that even after the entire toxic up and down ride he's been on with this role and with this franchise over the course of the last few years, which I've exhaustively covered across multiple websites for you, if after all that he's willing to sign a two-picture deal with an option for a third, that means he must have been blown away by whatever Reeves had to tell him. Maybe he saw some script pages. Maybe he just had a nice heart-to-heart -heart with Mr. Reeves. I don't know what, what it was, but if he is indeed sticking around after basically, you know, all signs pointing to this being a wrap for him, that can only mean one thing, and that's that Matt Reeves has come up with something amazing for the Batman. And uh, full disclosure... I've, uh, I've been really trying to get to the bottom of this. I want closure. I want to know what's going on so badly that I almost kind of uh, asked a favor that was a little unfair of me, and it kind of worked out because the timing precluded it from happening anyway. But long story short, I've got a friend who's an actor who's actually working on Triple Frontier with Ben Affleck, with Oscar Isaac, and last week, he was in Hawaii to shoot his scene. And I couldn't help it. Like, I hated to put him in this position. 
But I'm like, can you please ask Ben about what his next situation with Batman is? Because apparently, like, he's he's got a scene with with Ben, with Mr. Ben Affleck. So I'm like, dude, I you are my in. You are, I, I have one degree of separation to Mr. Affleck right now. I got to try to milk this. So I totally like overstepped a boundary and asked him to be unprofessional, basically, by getting him to try to get the exclusive for me. But unfortunately, with time zones being different, by the time I sent the request, and you know, he was already like asleep in Hawaii, like, you know, the, 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 I forget what the time, I think it's like a six hour difference. And he basically, he missed the request. And by the time he saw it, he was already on his way to the airport to return after having shot his scene. So I'm like, no, I could have gotten, I, I could have at least tried to get you the world exclusive directly from Affleck's mouth, you know, where he would say, oh yeah, I'm, you know, he, I, I, listen, in my, in, in, my, in my own heart, in my own fantasy of how this would play out, my friend would be very charming and very winning and very nonchalant and just kind of ask him like, because I, 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 I'm just going to share this with you guys because why not? You're my friends. So um, I was like, here's how you should phrase it. Don't ask him, hey, are you still going to be Batman? Because that implies some sort of like insider geeky knowledge since publicly it's stated that he is going to stay. So I just said, can you just kind of like in a cool way, just ask, hey, you know, wh wh when is your next Batman movie? And I figure whatever answer he gives us for that or he would give my friend for that would be very telling. But unfortunately, like I said, uh, I, I wasn't able to get that request in time. And, and I don't think he would have done it anyway, because, you know. At the end of the day, that is a touch unprofessional, and it, it might have made him look bad in in Ben's eyes. So I, I guess it's it's a good thing. I didn't want to get my friend in trouble, but I just want you to know that I was willing to cut through all kinds of etiquette and to put my friend in a really uncomfortable position just to ask you, uh, yeah, just to get you the definitive answer straight from Affleck's mouth whether or not he was staying. I got so close, but anyway. Before I change gears and move away from DC for a bit, I do just want to say how sort of heartwarming and comforting and affirming it is to have all this news about DC film projects to report on lately. Because remember, in the immediate aftermath of Justice League, there was so much uncertainty. And there were so many people trying to put out this, this narrative that that's it. They're going to reboot. We're never going to see Henry Cavill as Superman again. The DCU, as we know it, is going to just stop and they're going to hit a hard reboot soon and it's dead and the franchise is over. And there was all this doom and all this gloom. And now look what's going on out there. You know, you had that that first uh, you had that official reveal from Shazam, which caused all kinds of positive buzz. I, I I'm not even going to pay attention to the haters. Listen, the costume looks great, and I really think that they're onto something here with Levi, Levy, Levy, whatever the fuck his name is. Um, you've got positive buzz around Aquaman, which is already in the can and in post production and doing all that good stuff. And Wonder Woman is going to start filming in a couple of days. Wonder Woman 2 will start filming in a couple of days. And every week it feels like, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say every week because this week there wasn't 
uh, something that backs me up on this. But it feels like lately there's been a lot of Henry Cavill in headlines talking about Superman, right? Whether it be about, you know, sequels or, or the, the his connection to Christopher McQuarrie, who says he would do a sequel, this, this, and that. You know, he's still out there talking about Superman. It's, it's still very much like he is actively out there keeping interest alive in this character and in his version of the character. And again, that beautifully implies that he ain't going anywhere. So it's just like, it's so excellent. It's so excellent to have all these great DC stories going around because it just hits the point home once again that the brand is not going anywhere. The franchise is set to, to, to thrive and to sort of relaunch itself without throwing away everything that came before it. You know, keeping the good elements and de-emphasizing the things that didn't really work. And it's just, you know, to me, that that is kind of just a very rewarding takeaway from these last few weeks. Even with the rumors, even with the uncertainty around certain things, one aspect of all of this is very, very clear. And that's that the cinematic DC universe is not going anywhere and it's here to stay. And that, for me, I can do backflips. I, you know, regardless of Affleck stays, regardless if they announce the Superman sequel right away or if they do it in a few months or whatever, no matter what happens, the fact that all of this is still on the horizon to me is everything because everyone was busy telling me and fellow DC fans, oh, that's it. Justice League killed it. It's all over. This, this and that. You know, London is burning. No, it's not. All right. No, it is not. And that's fucking awesome but now you know let's go ahead and change gears a little bit i'm going to come back to some of this a little later on but for right now i want to talk a little star wars with you because you know it's funny solo a star wars story opens tonight i mean technically it's out already because of the thursday previews and you know it's it's no secret that i've been very like meh about this movie and i've had all kinds of negative things to say and reservations and concerns and all this yada 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 but ultimately it amounted to nothing because as it turns out i'm gonna see it tomorrow night and i won't be alone right now i have seven like cousin you know my, my, my wife my kids as well as my cousins and their kids right now i have a party of eight and it could swell up to ten if uh, my in-laws join us and meanwhile, you know, I'm organizing this entire outing. No one was going to go see this movie this weekend until I said, hey, we should check out Solo. And I came up with this bright idea two nights ago. And now all of a sudden I went from a guy who's like, nah, I don't really want to support this. Or if I see it, I'll wait till maybe a later weekend because I just, you know, I really don't feel like this movie had to be made. And now I'm bringing 10 people to go see it on opening weekend. So, you know, who am I? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hypocrite. I guess at the end of the day, you know, Star Wars still has that appeal, still has that draw. And even if I'm not certain that this movie is going to click all the right things for me, at least I know it's going to give me two hours in that galaxy far, far away. And sometimes that's enough. Um, so, you know, and... and with Star Wars on on the brain lately, it's I I, I kind of have to pinch myself because the talent that's been getting announced by Lucasfilm for the future of the Star Wars franchise is like it's a who's who of directors I really like, you know. So let, let, let's back up a little bit. They have. Uh, Weiss and Benioff, who aren't directors, but they run Game of Thrones, a show which to me is my favorite show on television. 
you know, I don't know if I've ever like made that declaration here on, on the podcast or on any of the shows, really. But for me, when Game of Thrones is on and running and there's an episode every week, there's no other show that quite captures my imagination, that gets me quite as in a state of anticipation or as locked in as that series. To me, it's like getting to watch a Hollywood movie, a brand new one, every single Sunday. And I'm always just in awe of the storytelling, of, of the balance of it all, the way it looks, the way it feels, where it takes me. So to have Weiss and Benioff get announced a few months ago as you know they're going to be developing an entire series of Star Wars movies, that's unfathomably awesome for me. Then John Favreau. I've been talking about John Favreau for years as someone that people sleep on. I think he's one of the best filmmakers of this generation. Because, you know, listen, I love Elf. I love the first Iron Man. I love Chef. I mean, in general, uh, Favreau is one of the... I love Jungle Book. Like, in general, he's one of these directors who I feel like he could be a next Spielberg. He could be one of these filmmakers that we're talking about for the next 20, 30 years. I think he's just that good. And then what do they do? Lucasfilm announced that he, that he's the one who's doing the live-action you know, Star Wars series on their streaming network. Like, what? Are you kidding me? And then yesterday, this was this is the big one. This is the new like breaking news, quote unquote. That James Mangold, James Mangold is going to direct. He's going to write and direct a Boba Fett movie. Like, are you kidding me? Now, listen. Aside from the fact that like I'm not the biggest Boba Fett guy personally, it's one of those characters that I've never really understood the hype. He was just, you know, he's got a cool helmet and, you know, I, I kind of like the idea, like there's this interesting history there between him and Han Solo. And yes, am I moderately intrigued by what their dynamic is and how it came to be? Sure, I would love to see that. But in general, I've never really been one of these people who's like, oh, Boba Fett. Like, you know, to me, it meant nothing that Attack of the Clones did so much to flesh out his backstory. I just, I've never been a Boba Fett guy. I, you know, I just have to go on the record as saying I don't really care about this character the way so many people other seem, you know, so many other people seem to. But with that said, James Mangold is one of these filmmakers who I have the utmost respect for. Is is one of these filmmakers that like, he he's made so many films over these last 20 years that I really, really like that it almost like sometimes I get surprised by them because I forget that he made them like I shit you not earlier this week when I started thinking about what this episode of the El Fanboy podcast was going to be. I started thinking about, oh, what's this week's referral going to be? You know, I, I, I missed a movie referral on a recent episode, and I, I do like keeping that tradition alive. So I was thinking, like, what's a movie I would like for people to see this week? And what popped into my head was the film Identity. Uh, it, 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 the lead actor is John Cusack, but it's actually got a great supporting cast, and you should totally look it up if you haven't yet. But I, you know, I had Identity on the brain as the movie I was going to recommend to you guys today. Then this news breaks about James Mangold. So, of course, I went to the website and, you know, I, I wrote up the story on Revenge of the Fans about his casting. I mean, his casting, his hiring for this Boba Fett movie. And while doing some research on him just to include some of his more prolific credits in his on his career, I noticed he directed Identity. <laughs> I'm like, what are the chances of that? But so... If, if you look at his cinematic au revoir, uh, I Love Identity, 
I love 310 to Yuma. I'm completely infatuated with Logan. And he's just one of these filmmakers who's been like, for me, on the cusp of breaking out and becoming a household name for a long time because he's just that good. And now, all of a sudden, they're going to give him the keys to make a Star Wars movie? He's going to write and direct a Star Wars movie? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I can't believe how lucky I am. I can't believe that you know, several of my favorite creators and filmmakers and creative types are now going to play in a canvas that I'm utterly in love with, which is the canvas created by George Lucas, that, that magical galaxy far, far away. So I, I just ha I'm so excited to see what Mr. Mangold comes up with. Personally, I kind of hope that Boba Fett is not what this movie is. Like, I know they're calling it that, and, and right now it's, it's a good way to get trending news headlines, and it's a good way to sort of phrase this hiring. But I hope it's more so a movie that generally talks about the bounty hunters and the criminal underworld in Star Wars. You know, because it's always hinted at around Jabba the Hutt's palace, and we get these hints of it. I'm sure Solo is going to shed some interesting light on the whole criminal underworld, which is an area that we never really get to spend a ton of time in, in the actual proper Star Wars, you know, um, episodes. So I, I kind of hope that it has a broader scope than just, here's Boba Fett, and now we're going to sort of over-explain his origin and over-explain his motivations. I hope it's more so like, yeah, maybe he's our entry point into this story, but the story hopefully has a lot more going for it than just, here's a bunch more Boba Fett, because that doesn't really interest me in all honesty. But then again, with Mangold in charge, I guess I'm willing to kind of go with, you know what, whatever he wants to do, whatever makes him creatively alive is just fine with me. And, you know, while we're talking Star Wars, we may as well go into the fact that the first numbers are now in for Solo, A Star Wars Story. And it's funny, because it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, if you look at it one way, it looks really promising. If you look at it in an, at another way, it's sort of depressing. But let's start with the number itself. So the Thursday preview numbers are in, right? And that's usually a pretty good indicator for the kind of weekend a movie's going to have. And as of this morning, the numbers came in that Solo A Star Wars Story posted $14.1 million for its Thursday night previews. So let's, let's, let's first focus on the positive. That, ex that, that currently exceeds the current title holder for best Memorial Day weekend ever. That is Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Because that movie opened, you know, it, it made $13.2 million and ultimately went on to, an, to, to, to take the Memorial Day record with a haul of $139.8 million. And by exceeding the 13.2, people are thinking that Solo might go ahead and take the, the, the Memorial Day record this weekend. But on the other hand, you have to think about the fact that the last Star Wars movie was, you know, Star Wars The Last Jedi. And on, on its Thursday night previews, that movie made $45 million. Now, granted, no one's ever expecting a, a Star Wars story anthology film to compete with a proper episode, but that is quite a divide. We're talking a $31 million difference between what a Star Wars movie in December pulled in on a Thursday and what a Star Wars movie now has pulled in on a Thursday. And also, according to Deadline, 
people in Hollywood industry box office pundit types are not that impressed with this Thursday preview because despite the fact that it exceeds at world's end, it is very close to Justice League. Justice League also opened to, it opened to 13 million. And people point to the fact that Solo's reviews are kind of tepidly positive. This is not like an overwhelming win of a movie. So people are like, no one wants to sort of count their chickens before they're hatched. I guess maybe they learned last week when the initial projections for Deadpool 2 were 150 million and it landed at 125. Everyone seems to be trying to get a little more conservative now. So apparently there are industry box office analysts who look at that 14.1 million and they don't want to go out on a, on, on a limb and say that Solo is going to have a crazy weekend because it could fall apart for a lot of other different factors. So I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on Solo's performance. Uh, I'm going to get to see the movie itself and judge for myself to see whether or not I think this deserves to either have great legs and great buzz around it, or if it deserves the sort of tepid response that it's gotten so far. So, you know, as always, I will be tracking that in the days and weeks to come, both here on El Fanboy, as well as on the Revengers podcast, as well as, of course, on the site, revengeofthefans.com. And, you know, while we're talking about the site, I kind of want to just drop a small tease here. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've just come into some interesting uh, DC bochinche, and I'm going to be writing up a story about it. It has to do with the animated Harley Quinn series. So uh, keep an eye on, on the site because uh, I think I may have just found out who's voicing a couple of the key characters. And I, 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 it's uh, pretty exciting. So that's a little tease there for you, all right? But for now, let's go ahead and, and bring things back to the, the, the initial sort of premise and theme of this episode. Because it's a theme that sort of has, has been, uh, I don't know, the universe has been trying to make me think of this a lot lately. And I don't know why. Maybe I, I need to learn something or, or I need to be reminded of a lesson that I, I've had to learn in hard ways before. But the central theme of, of this episode is the idea of making a lot out of a little, out of appreciating what you do have and not getting, you know, not, not losing sight of what's right in front of you and what's really most important. Um, so bef before getting sort of personal on it, uh, coincidentally, I've, I've been listening on Audible to this book called The Death of WCW. And for those of you who didn't follow professional wrestling or don't know why that's important, you know, it's it, it's a big story and I, I won't take up too much of your time talking about professional wrestling, but it actually works as a very good comparison and metaphor for what I was discussing earlier on in this episode about, you know, the, the dangers of having unlimited resources and how you can lose sight of the small things. So towards the end of the 90s, uh, World Championship Wrestling went on an incredible run where they actually overtook the competition, the then WWF, World Wrestling Federation, and basically became the biggest wrestling company in the world. And they actually helped wrestling to cross over into the pop culture. Suddenly, it was cool to be a wrestling fan. Suddenly, more people were watching wrestling than at any other time ever in history. It became this big pop culture moment. You know, and they had everything going for them. They had the greatest talent roster a company has could ever ask for. They had a hot angle with the New World Order. 
they had the ownership in their back pocket. They had Ted Turner as their owner and benefactor with his unlimited resources. Or, you know, you want how much you want to build a new set? You want to hire this overpriced talent? Oh, you want to add a new TV show? Whatever you want, go ahead and do it. And what happened is actually sort of incredible in hindsight. Because over on the other end, you had the WWF that did not have the unlimited resources and suddenly found themselves with their back against the ropes, so to speak. And realizing, you know, we just lost millions of dollars and this competition has now, like, they've overtaken us. And for 83 weeks straight, we've lost in the ratings and all of our top stars are heading over there because it's a better payday. And then what did they do with their backs to the wall, realizing we have to make the most out of what we do have? They reinvented themselves. They, they, they created new stars. They attempted new concepts. They completely changed the way they presented things. And all of a sudden, within a span of two years, WWF would come out on top and WCW would not only stumble, would not only come in second place, but in a span of two years, they went from the top company ever, practically, to actually going out of business because they lost sight of the day-to-day. They lost sight of making sure that every episode of their shows was as compelling as it can be. They lost sight of the importance of building new stars. They They lost sight of the importance of trying to stay one step ahead of your audience and trying to change a storyline or something in advance before people get tired of it. All they saw was, we have all these great ratings, we have this blank check that's open to us to do whatever we want with. And we're just, you know, it just, it, 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 it's incredible to, to hear this story. If you have a chance to check out the book, if you're at all, if you were ever a wrestling fan, I strongly recommend the, the, the death of WCW written by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. It's truly fascinating to see how you can go from number one to out of business within two years, and it was partially because they were eating with their eyes. They were, they were looking at the fact that they had this infinite landscape to do whatever they want with, and they lost sight of what it takes day by day to create compelling characters, compelling storylines, and to try to engage your audiences in ways that are new and exciting because things get stale. So, you know, it's interesting to me that this theme sort of keeps popping back up into my life, this this theme of, you know, making the most of what you've got and not taking for granted what you've got because it's easy to do that when life is easy, when life is comfortable, when everything goes your way and every little thing you want you get, you can lose sight of the hustle. You can lose sight of the importance of honoring and, and really focusing on that which really matters. You know, and I've alluded in the past that, you know, a couple of years ago, back in 2015, you know, I almost lost everything. And it's because I took my family for granted. It's because I took the little things for granted. And I thought I was entitled to more than I really had. And, you know, I, I went down a dangerous path. And a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's, I, I'm still sort of unpacking and digesting this incredible conversation I had with my grandmother, my tata. That's what I call her, tata. Um, this is a woman who's gone through all kinds of unbelievable hardships in her life. She has a life that's worthy of a book or possibly even a movie. When you track, you know, she was born and raised in Cuba. She's like one of 11 kids. 
and she grew up in like poverty and she went through the ups and downs of like Fidel Castro taking over the country and the communism and the executions happening and having to like find a way to scrape and, and put together a livelihood for herself and her kids and her family. I mean, she has this incredible story. So I sat down with her a couple of weeks ago just to like, just to just to shoot the breeze, just to really dig in to her history. Cause she always very just kind of offhandedly alludes to some of these incredible things that she's dealt with. And I kind of wanted to just kind of get into it with her, you know, because she 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 astounds me because no matter what's happened in her life, you know, this is a woman she's like my best friend. And, you know, something I've, I've referenced in the past is that, you know, my childhood pretty much sucked. You know, I was very alone and I, no brothers or sisters, no real friends until I was about 14. And, you know, due to certain, you know, certain key adult relationships were how I was able to turn out the way I did and keep a level head and not go completely out of my fucking mind. And a lot of that is my tata. And, you know, this is a woman who's always got a smile on her face. She always has an encouraging voice, an encouraging word to say, an interesting way of looking at things that kind of spins things on their head and makes you look at them from a positive light. And maybe that's why, you know, I, I tend to try to be very positive. And thank you. You know, I, I, I got a review on this here show, which I really appreciated. I posted about it. But I got I got a review. I don't know who the user is. It's you know their their, their username on Apple Podcasts is Big D Cool twenty fifty. So Big D Cool, if you're listening, uh, thank you. But you know this person wrote informative and personal. Mario is so nice and easy to listen to, even on things he's not crazy about. He still keeps a positive tone to his voice. Definitely a must listen for any fan. Thank you, Big D Cool. But I bring this up because that positive voice, that trying to find the good in any sort of situation, no matter how bad it is, a lot of that I get from my tata. And this is a woman who, like, aside from what I've brought up before with poverty and communism and Cuba and all the insanity of that, you know, she's the mother of Elizabeth Benya, the once famous character actress, my aunt, who died way too young. You know, we lost her, I want to say... I don't know, maybe three or four years ago now, the, the, the years sort of blend into one. Maybe it was four years ago. You know, she had to bury her eldest daughter. And that's something that no parent should ever have to go through. This woman has been through so much, and yet she's a rock, and she's strong, and she manages to find a silver lining, and she inspires me every day. Um, and during this conversation I had with her, and I was trying to find out about her childhood and what it was that got her to come from Cuba to the United States, and then she actually went back to Cuba and then back to the United States in the middle of all the Castro stuff, and something she said just like knocked me for a loop. She revealed to me that in her mind, in her heart, the happiest times in her life were in the times when she had nothing. And I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, because when me and my siblings, when me and my 10 other siblings had nothing, we had each other. And it forced us to rely on one another and become as, as loving and warm and supportive as possible. Because when you're, you know, when, you're, when you're not sure where your next meal is going to come from, you band together and you figure out, we're gonna figure out how to get through this together. 
and she tells me this story about how like you know they they, they were starving and their rations were were done and they didn't have any you know any money for food or any resources and they'd been abandoned by their father and then one of her brothers found a pigeon in front of the house and managed to capture the pigeon and killed it you know i'm sorry for uh, you know animal lovers but they got this pigeon and their mom made a soup made a pigeon soup that night and it's a total like poor peasant thing you know what i mean it's, it, it, there's nothing to it but she she remembers nights like that of the entire family communing around this pot of pigeon soup and there was just so much love and joy and appreciation in the air that those are the moments that have mattered to her the most. She's 87 years old, and when she thinks back on her life, she thinks back on moments like those, where she had to band together with her loved ones to, to, to get through something dark and scary together. That even though they technically had nothing, they had everything because they had each other. And to me, like that's just, that's astounding, and it's beautiful. Um... And it's funny because like it, it just it, it it's be it's become the through line for this episode because I know it doesn't necessarily tie into what's going on at DC Entertainment. It's, maybe it's a weird comparison to make, but I just feel like lately the universe has has been trying to say like it hit me over the head with this idea of like don't take things for granted, make the most out of a little, take two sticks and make a fire, because when you have everything, when the world is your oyster. It's easy to forget what's right in front of you. And that's what's most important, being where your feet are and taking advantage of that which you do have, which gifts, which resources are right in front of you. And, you know, just to sort of tie what, you know, what was a very sort of corporate strategy talk that we started this episode with, you know, there is a personal moral of the story there. And that's what it is. So I just kind of wanted to share that with you because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, that conversation, I mean, there's so many things she said to me that afternoon that I'm like, I legit want to try to write a book about her life because when I think about what she's gone through and the incredible hardship she's endured and the, the bittersweet triumphs that she's gone through, you know, there's no one more inspiring to me than, than my Tata Margarita and how she spent most of her life making a lot out of a little and trying to see the good in even the darkest situations. Um, and that's why, you know, to, uh, to borrow a, a phrase from Patton Oswalt's late wife who passed away way too young. I believe she was 42, Michelle McNamara, uh, a line that I've mentioned on Twitter that I paraphrased on last week's show. And I'm thinking of making part of my permanent, uh, signature closing is, Life is chaos. Be kind. Until next week. Adios.